The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Three, Cutting Hope. Jasmine kicked up gravel, pawing at the town farm's driveway. Settle down, you crazy woman, scolded Jen as she pulled on the reins. Martin hopped off the trap with his canvas bundle under one arm. Margaret waved. I'll be back in two hours, Jen said over her shoulder. I'm not sure who's really in charge of that pair, Margaret said. It's nice to think that Jasmine lets Jen come along for the ride, Martin said with a wink. Oh my, uh, you're here early, Mrs. Webster wiped her hands on her apron. Uh, talk to Jasmine about that, said Martin. She thinks it's a race. Uh, Candace hasn't been here yet. I haven't yet gathered the others, said Mrs. Webster. But uh, come on in out of the cold. I, I have a pot of tea brewing on the fire. Uh, where's Paul? Martin asked. I heard him splitting wood around back, said Mrs. Webster. Martin waved and walked around the farmhouse. In the backyard, Paul was chopping on a big round. He was spending more time wiggling his stuck axe blade loose than splitting wood. Hey, Paul. Hey, said Paul. You're early. Yeah, so I've been told. Might as well get started, eh? Jen said she'd be back in two hours. I don't want to get left behind. You got any volunteers? Yeah, yeah but they thought you were going to be here a little later. They might not be bundled up yet. Well, go get them. I'm going to rummage around through the tool shed a bit. Through the barn walls, Martin could hear Paul calling the workers like a drill sergeant might roust his platoon of recruits. <laughs> For a photocopier salesman, Martin thought, he's got quite the voice. Martin climbed up on the cluttered workbench to reach the long crosscut saw hanging from two nails in the rafters. While he was up on the bench, he spotted the handles of an old bow saw. There wasn't any blade in the frame, but it was a start. He also found a pair of iron bars. He shrugged his shoulders at what they might have been intended for. For today, however, they would be some handy pry bars. The voices of the work crew were a mix of sleepy grumbles and enthusiasm. Martin blinked in the bright morning light as he emerged from the tool shed. Six men and two women stood in a semicircle around Martin, all looking expectantly, if a bit groggy. Good morning, everyone, Martin said, for lack of a better idea what to say. Uh, thanks for signing up for our little summer camp. Only two of them smiled at his attempted joke. Martin made a mental note not to try humor first thing in the morning. Before we go play in the woods, we need to fix up these tools a bit. First off, I need someone to go back into the tool shed and look for a saw blade that'll fit this bow saw. He held up the gray wooden frame. It'll be about an inch wide and about this long, he pointed between the ends of the frames. One of the women raised her hand. I'll go. She disappeared into the dark doorway. Okay, the next thing we need to get done is get this old crosscut saw back in working order. It needs sand rubbed all over the flat of the blade until most of the rust is gone. Sounds like fun, right? A couple of the men rolled their eyes. Okay, maybe not fun exactly. Uh, how about not too hard? One of the eye rollers volunteered. Cool, thanks. Here, 
Take some sand, like that stuff along the roadway. Rub it all over the blade. Keep your gloves on for that. Be careful not to rub the sand around these teeth ends. We'll file those back to sharpness when you're done. The man took the rusty saw and walked to the roadside. Paul, that leaves a couple of guys for you to... Is this it? asked the woman from the tool shed. She held up a rusty strap about two feet long. I found it lying on top of a board on the wall. Yeah, I bet that's it, but it looks pretty far gone, Martin said. But maybe we can coax it back to life. See how that one guy is rubbing sand on that saw? Do that to this one, too, until you've gotten most of the rust off. Don't sand the teeth, though. The woman nodded, but looked skeptically at the rusty blade. As I was saying, that leaves a couple of you to split what you have left of the maple. I brought my splitting mall from home. Paul drafted two men to help him split and stack. That leaves you two to help me cut up the rest of this maple with this two-man saw, Martin said. He instructed the men on how to stand on opposite sides of the tree and how to pull in turns and develop a rhythm. They started on one of the main branches. It would cut through faster and it would be better for practice. The first man was too eager. He kept pushing the saw so it bowed to one side or the other and bound up in the slot. It made for slow going. There wasn't any rhythm. It was a challenge for Martin to keep his patience. When the branch fell away, the men beamed at the accomplishment. Martin made the excuse of spreading the training around, but he really just wanted to see if the other man would be better at the two-man saw. Yeah, he wasn't. Now remember, Martin tried to sound nonchalant and not harsh, you're pulling on the power stroke. Then I pull on mine. It's not like a handsaw where you push to cut. They cut off the second fork. Martin had to take off his jacket. Cutting with rookies was a lot more work than it had to be. Nonetheless, Martin didn't want to rain on their parade. They seemed happy at seeing progress. Wood to keep their families warm. Martin had the other men trade off turns working with him on the saw. They all had problems getting it. Despite all the binding and hopping out of the slot, the group managed to cut up the rest of the old maple. A man and his wife rolled the big rounds over to where Paul was splitting. A young girl came with a bucket of water and a metal cup. Everyone took a turn gulping down the cold water. Okay, break's over, Martin called. How's this? asked the man who had been sanding the crosscut saw. The metal was blotchy and dull gray, but serviceable. Hey, that looks tons better, Martin said. Now to dress up those teeth. See how the teeth are on this two-man saw? They're kind of the same shape on this old one, just smaller. One tooth cuts on this side, the next tooth cuts the other side. These hook-shaped ones are the rakers. They don't really cut, they just scrape the sawdust out of the slot. Use this file and stroke the tooth along the bevel that's already there. Two bevels per tooth. Keep the angle steady and don't rush. The maple round, waiting to be split, made for a serviceable little work table. Martin watched and corrected the man's filing style until it seemed consistent. Martin tried a different sawing partner for the tougher job of cutting off more rounds from the maple's trunk. The woman was actually less of a problem. Martin thought it might be because she had less experience using a regular handsaw, so got the notion of pull-to-cut much easier. 
"'What do you think now?' asked the man with the cross-cut saw. The teeth looked good. Their edges felt sharp enough. Martin sighted along the blade. The offset of the teeth might need tweaking a bit, but it was fine-tuning for down the road. "'Well, that looks pretty good. Give it a try on one of those branches that we just cut off.' The man was cutting off stove lengths of branch fast enough to keep someone busy carrying them to the splitting pile. "'Okay,' said Martin loudly to the group. "'We've got some people splitting, some cutting here in the yard. I need three or four people to go into the woods to find another tree to cut up.' Several hands went up. Grade school training runs deep. Martin led the three men and a woman with the repaired bow saw into the woods. "'Most of the trees don't have any leaves now anyhow, but we don't want live wood, green wood.' We want wood that's been dead a while. It'll be drier for burning. Look up, look for big branches that are missing bark. Or, like that one there, see? It has no little branches, no twigs, like the rest of these. It's been dead long enough for those twigs to have all broken off. That'll be our next volunteer. A quick talk on tree-felling safety was absorbed with wide eyes. No one wanted a tree to fall on them. Martin explained the process of notching and the felling cut to make a hinge that would try to direct the tree's fall, but he cautioned them that trees can be stubborn. A split, a twisting grain, a dry-rot patch, any of them could cause the tree to fall off course. Martin smiled that his crew stood so very far away. He took that to mean that they were heeding his safety advice. The dead hickory fell just about where Martin said he wanted it to fall. A couple of the upper branches did break off during the crash through the other trees, so it was good that his crew stood further off. Bosaw woman set to work trimming off the smaller branches. Martin and one of the other men cut free one of the big forks. The other two men wrapped chains from the tool shed around their waists and around the base of the big fork. It was too heavy to lift, but the two-man mule team was able to drag the fork to the processing area in the backyard. While the mule team was at work, Martin and his men cut free the second fork. Sections of the trunk had to be sized to suit the mule team. There were no more branches to trim. Bosaw woman wanted to be one of the mules. Martin cut down a second dead tree, not as big around, but left it for the others to tend to. They had seen what to do. His two hours were nearly up. Back at the house, the woodcutter volunteers looked hot and tired, but also chatty and happy. Their wood problem looked solvable. Paul was disappointed that Martin didn't want to leave his two-man saw at the farm, but he understood. They could get by with the big crosscut for a lot of the work, even if it meant sawing halfway through a big log, rolling it over, and cutting in from the other side. They could make it work. Riding on the back of Jen's trap was a welcome break from the manual labor of logging. We had a good session out in the woods, Martin said. None of them are any good at the two-man saw, but they were willing workers. How did it go in the kitchen? Margaret shook her head. I knew women nowadays didn't cook, but I honestly had no idea how little. I talked about boiling rice, plain old rice, mind you, and they all just looked at me like I'd asked them to fillet a snail or something. One brave soul said she sometimes made minute rice, if she had time. 
Well, don't be too hard on him, Martin said. I mean, look at Susan. She didn't cook, and you've got her making flatbread from scratch, hominy, and all kinds of things. You can teach these people, too. I hope you're right. Them not having a clue on how to cook from scratch is the main reason their supplies were going down so fast. The pre-prepared stuff, the easy-to-eat food, was disappearing first. The bulk foods, the rice, the beans, the flour, etc., were barely touched. Now that's mostly what they have left. Beans and milk from the dairy are going to be their primary sources of proteins now. So tomorrow you teach them how to make beans and rice and flatbread? Uh, yes, but also that they need to limit and balance their portions. I mean, you can't really have one plan for everyone. Too many different ages and body sizes, etc. I tried to keep it simple for today. Try to limit their meals to a cup and a half of rice, half a cup of beans, and only one cup of their canned foods, like a veggie or a fruit or whatever. Well, that probably went over well, Martin said. Margaret was accustomed to his deadpan sarcasm. Yeah. Their problem is going to be equality. Everyone doesn't need the same calorie intake. Those guys cutting wood will need lots more than those who stay in the house all day. But I heard some early grumbling already about equal portions being the only fair way to do things. As Jen slowed the trap at the Simmons's driveway, Margaret hopped off the seat. Martin remained seated. Aren't you coming in? she asked. Uh, no, I'm going to go up to town hall and see if there's something that can be done about that farm supply level. But you can take my tool bundle. Just leave it in the garage. I want to clean it and oil the saw tonight. Okay. Margaret waved as the trap rolled up the road. Don't be too long. Anna's making more tortillas tonight, she called out. That set off a Pavlovian reaction within Martin. His lone tortilla sample at supper the night before tasted exactly like a big Frito chip. He only got a quarter of a cup of Anna's bean dip, but it melted in his mouth. He had never been all that fond of corn tortillas or bean dip in the past, but times were different now. A sudden jolt from a pothole jarred Martin out of his reverie. He grabbed the back rail tighter with one hand. With the other... He wiped the line of drool from the corner of his mouth and tried not to think about food. Concentrating on how to make Jen a buggy with springs was a better use of his ride time. Jen pulled up short of her long driveway. Are you sure you don't want to ride up to town halls? she asked. It's only a little ways. No, but thanks, Martin said. It's a short walk from your place up to town. Thanks for the ride this far. Besides, Jasmine looks hungry. Don't want to keep a hungry horse waiting. Ah, shoot. Jen waved off his concern. She's always hungry. See you tomorrow? Same time? Yep, same time. Martin adjusted the carbine to sit on his back more comfortably and headed to town. A long line of people stood in front of town hall. Only when he got closer did Martin see that the line led to the back of a green flatbed truck behind the building. Clyde and his sons were selling more ears of corn. The house rule still seemed to be in effect. People left with a plastic Walmart bag or a small canvas tote of corn. This seemed to be as good a time as any to ask the selectman about how the town farm might get some of Clyde's corn. The town clerk directed Martin downstairs. Landers was in the police chief's office. Martin could hear voices below. 
with only the faint glow of a small basement window for light, walking slowly was only wise. But Martin walked even more slowly to try and minimize the creaking of the old square stairway. He wanted to hear what they were discussing. Maybe they were already hashing out a deal to get some of Clyde's corn for the town farm. But I'm the patent attorney, said an unfamiliar woman's voice. We know that, Pat, said Landers. Nonetheless, you are all we've got for a trained legal professional. That doesn't mean I know how to be a judge, complained Pat. Heck, I've seldom even stood before a judge. All of my work is research, writing briefs, filling out forms. Nobody's born a judge, said Chief Berg. They start out as lawyers, right? Right, said a cautious Pat. Martin crept slowly down the stairs, leaning over to peek in the chief's door that glowed brightly from a camp lantern. And then lawyers get appointed to be judges, said Landers. Happens all the time. But I know patent law, and I'm not a criminal attorney. This is a matter for superior court. County won't take them, countered Berg. They said the courts haven't heard any cases since the lights went out, and there's no plan for when they'll be in session again. We're stuck with them and we got to do something. Martin could figure that they were talking about the gang member that they'd captured. Disposition of the prisoners seemed like a weightier matter than corn for the town farm. Martin didn't want to interrupt. On the other hand, if they got done soon, he wanted to be outside the door to catch Landers before he dashed off on some other town business. Well, we can't just keep him locked up in there, Landers said. We still need to have some due process. It's not just for our prisoner. It's for everyone else in town, Pat. They need to see that the rule of law still exists. There's a few people out there who want us to take him out and shoot him. Does that sound like any kind of due process? What do you think will happen if people out there get to thinking that the only law is the law of the jungle? That if you don't like someone, you can just shoot him? Well, I don't know if... Uh... Pat trailed off, as if unsure her objection had merit. I arrested the man after the attacks, said Berg. Law says the man must be arraigned within 24 hours. We might be forgiven for taking longer, on account of the outage and all, but we've got to arraign him soon and hold a hearing. For that, we need a judge. But I'm not a judge, protested Pat. Ah, you will be once we appoint you, said Landers. You can't just appoint your own judges. There's a whole judicial committee that... Isn't meeting either, Landers finished her sentence. We can't just wait for the rest of New Hampshire's bureaucracy to recover and get back up to speed. That could take months. We owe it to the people of this town to have the law functioning right now, even if it's not perfect. How's this? We could appoint you as a temporary judge and send a letter up to Concord for the governor to weigh in on. Uh, that's more official, right? I already read him his Miranda rights, said Berg. He took his right to remain silent super seriously. He hasn't said a peep since we brought him in. He's been no help at all. Officer Stuba has agreed to be our town prosecutor since he took two years of pre-law at BU. Stuby wants to charge him with the murders, but for that, we need an arraignment and a hearing. For that, we need a judge. Hey, Simmons, called out Landers. I didn't see you out there in the dark hallway. Come on in. You're just in time to act as our public witness for the swearing-in of our new local judge, Judge Patricia Calhoun. 
Pat rolled her eyes. Her posture collapsed slightly in resignation. She had run out of counter-arguments. Uh, I just wanted to talk to you about Clyde's corn, began Martin. In a minute. First, we have to finish up this. Lander's face pat and cleared his throat. <coughs> As the head of the executive branch of this local governance, I, Jefferson Davis Landers, in the presence of these witnesses— uh, Hold on, interrupted Berg. Uh, don't we need a Bible? He pulled open his desk drawer and pulled out a well-worn Bible. He held it in his open palm in front of Pat. She put her hand on top of the Bible cautiously. Adding a Bible made it all much more serious. Okay, go ahead, Jeff, said Berg. All right. I hereby appoint you, Patricia Calhoun, Esquire, to the position of temporary local judge for the town of Cheshire. Um... Until such time as the governor of the state of New Hampshire either approves or uh, nullifies this appointment, do you, Patricia Calhoun, agree to be a fair and impartial judge in all of the matters set before you? Pat stared in the distance, as if pondering whether it would work to say no, or if maybe she could just not answer. Berg cleared his throat loudly. Oh, fine. Pat's voice dripped with reservations. Excellent! Then, by the power invested in me by the people of Cheshire, I hereby appoint you Cheshire's temporary judge. Landers looked around the room. I should have had my gavel or something. Pat muttered to herself. Huh. Judge Calhoun. Judge Calhoun? Yes, said Landers. Judge Calhoun. And we should schedule this kid's arraignment for tomorrow morning. Uh, how would ten o'clock work for you? So soon? I mean, yeah, I guess that works. But where will the courtroom be? And I don't have any judge's robes. We'll use the auditorium, said Landers. We can put that extra wooden desk up on the stage. That'll get you up high like a judge. You can use my gavel. As for robes, uh... Landers stroked his short Santa beard. Uh, what about one of the choir robes from the Baptist church? Hey, yeah, chimed in Berg. They're black and burgundy, real dignified. Uh, look, said Martin, I hate, I hate to interrupt. That's okay, Simmons. I think we're done for now. Now, what did you want? I wanted to talk to you about some way to get some of Clyde's corn for the folks at the town farm. Margaret's assessment is that they'll last longer than three weeks, but they still don't have enough to get them through the winter. Ah, that's a tough one. Clyde's only taken dollars. Town doesn't have anywhere near that much petty cash for that. All the rest is in checking accounts. Well, I figured as much, so I was thinking of maybe deferred future dollars? What if the town were to cancel a portion of Clyde's property tax as payment? Uh, you could do that, right? The Santa beard got stroked again. Hmm, we could possibly try something like that. Call it an abatement. Let's look up what his taxes might be. They're listed upstairs by the map and plot number. I couldn't begin to guess what his property's numbers might be. But the plat books are down here in the records room. Let's go look them up. Landers picked up his lantern. He and Martin left Chief Berg in his office, discussing with Judge Calhoun how they would conduct the arraignment, particularly if the accused wouldn't speak or enter a plea. Landers led down the short windowless corridor. 
He stopped before a door labeled records. Here, he said, hold this lantern while I fish out my keys. Martin held the lantern high to give better light. In the glow, he noticed that to their left was a door with a heavy wire mesh in lieu of a window. Holding cell, said the sign beside the door. In the faint light from the high-slit window, Martin could see the prisoner inside. The young man rushed up to the wire mesh. Him! I choose him! What? what? said Landers and Martin at the same time. What's this? Chief Berg came quickly out of his office. He's talking? Oh, what did he say? I don't know, said Landers. I said I choose him, repeated the young man. He pointed to Martin. Me? What do you mean, you choose me? You said, if I didn't have a lawyer, you'd give me one. I choose him, said the young man. But he's not a lawyer, said Landers. Don't matter. You ain't got no lawyers anyhow. I heard you guys. Doors open. So I want him. Martin was full of objections. He knew nothing about being a lawyer. He didn't like this hoodlum. He had enough else to do without adding impossible tasks to his to-do list. But why me? The young man remained silent. Martin turned to Landers. But I don't want to be his lawyer. I, I can't be his lawyer. I'm not even close to being a lawyer. Berg motioned for Martin and Landers to return to his office. He closed the door behind them. Look, I know you're not a lawyer, and technically you don't have to be a bar-certified lawyer to represent someone at a hearing. Certainly not now, when there's only one lawyer in town and we just made her the judge. But I have no idea what I'm doing, Martin protested. No, no, this just won't work. He's just picking people at random. Some sort of criminal trick or something. I don't know, Simmons, said Landers thoughtfully. That kid hadn't said a word until he saw you. From what I heard, you did talk Charles out of shooting this kid in the head. So? It wasn't the right thing to do. It had nothing to do with me wanting to save that guy. I don't know the guy. I don't even like the guy. You don't have to like him, said Berg. Just talk with him. We don't know much of anything. Do we charge him with four murders? One murder? Jaywalking? Tomorrow we have to arraign him and have a hearing. The law says he has a right to have someone help defend him. Truth is, you're not doing it for him so much as you're doing it for everyone else. You heard what I told Pat. Same goes for you now. The people need to see that an obviously guilty party still gets treated fair. Legally speaking, here in Cheshire, even nowadays. Oh, man, Martin threw up his hands. Now you're asking me to uphold the sense of the law for everyone? Well, no pressure or anything, huh? Okay, so never mind that, Simmons, said Landers. Just represent him at the hearing. There aren't going to be any jury trials in Superior Court for months or longer. Once he's been arraigned and charged, the judge can set some terms for his detention until his trial. If it doesn't look like the law is still in control, I'm afraid an angry mob will show up and lynch him. Lord have mercy on us all if people around here start lynchings. Martin blew out a sigh. Landers was right. The young man's fate wasn't the important issue. Keeping due process alive was. All right, fine. But only for the hearing. I'm not his lawyer for life or anything, understand? Lander shook Martin's hand vigorously. Yes, yes, just like you said. You're really helping us all out, Simmons. You really are. Now, 
since the hearing is tomorrow morning, you really should go and talk with your, uh, client. I'm not getting in the same room as him. Are you nuts? No, 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 no. You talk through the mesh. I'll go upstairs. Chief Berg will be here in his office with the door closed. All nice and private. If you need anything, just give a shout and the chief will be right there. Oh, man, whined Martin. I just came here to ask you about some corn for crying out loud. Yeah, right, and I'll just get that plat book and head upstairs and look up Clyde Gradig's tax roll information. See? We can do both. Landers held a cheesy grin, as if it made his comment more convincing. Oh, whatever. Let's get started. I need to get home for supper pretty soon. Landers found the right plat book in just a few minutes and scurried upstairs with it under his arm. Chief Berg brought Martin a stool. He hung the lantern from a sprinkler head. Martin sat down, head in his hands, trying to replay how he got himself into such a predicament. He had no idea even where to begin. Look, I don't think this is a good idea, said Martin. You killed the aunt and uncle of one of my friends. You were shooting at me. How am I supposed to pretend that that didn't happen? You really need to ask for someone else who— I didn't kill nobody, interrupted the young man. I know everyone thinks I killed him, but I didn't. You talk that dude out of blowing my head off. You've been the only one here that's talked fair. If I'm going to get any kind of shake, it's going to be at you. Martin shook his head in his hands. He wasn't sure he wanted the young man to get a shake. Tattoos, baggy clothes, swagger. He was the very picture of what the modern godless entitlement society produces. Why would anyone want to save that? He mumbled a short prayer for wisdom. Perhaps he could, at the very least, find some answers to the tragic events. Perhaps, if that young man was anything like Clyde, he might reveal some useful facts around the edges. Let's start from square one. I'm Martin Simmons. Who are you? Trevor. Trevor Williams. Where do you live? Oh, different places. All around. Manchester, I guess. We don't got, like, just one home or nothing. Okay, whatever. Let's cut to the chase. You and your buddies came up here and killed four people. They want to charge you with murder. There's people outside that would just as soon stand you up against a wall and shoot you right now. I know that, but I ain't killed nobody. I didn't even want to come on this fool trip. Martin's eyes narrowed in a give-me-a-break expression. Martin was skeptical. A desperate young man had nothing to lose by spinning a sad tale of a poor boy swept away by a wave of evil. I know what you're thinking. You be thinking, I'm making all this up just to save my sorry butt. Well, I ain't. Yeah, right. Then let's start with why you and your gang came all the way out here to rob us. Oh, that was Bomber's idea. Was Bomber one of the others who came here? Hell no. Bomber's a boss. He don't go on jobs. He sends people. Don't nobody mess with Bomber. They call him that because he got kicked out of school because he brought a pipe bomb. Anyhow, he heard there was a town out here in the boonies that had lots of food and that the homies was hogging it, you know, not sharing with the people, and how that just ain't right and how we ought to fix that. Uh, why would this Bomber have any idea what people in the boonies have? Why did you guys believe him? He said he heard it from a big man. Big man always seems to know stuff. Big man? 
Who is this big man? Hell, I don't know. I ain't never seen him. I only heard about him from Bama. Anyhow, Bama figures this Booney's town was hating on us for hogging all that food, and how it was our job to go in, get that food for our poor folks. Of course, Bama and his top boys wanted their share, too. They always do. That's just business, right? So you came out here to take food you figure you had a right to? Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's not like we came out here to kill nobody. Just get our food. Then why did you kill Mrs. Marchant, the lady in the first house? I didn't kill nobody. I told you that. That was Scooge. He's always too hot. The lady kept screaming, you know. Scooge told her to shut up, but she kept screaming. He'd been itching to use that big fancy gun, so he... Wait, what big fancy gun? Did it have a long barrel that had a rail along the top of it? Yeah, yeah, that's the one big honking thing. Only the real arterios get those. Boy, and didn't it make him strut when he got one. Thought he was all of that. Uh, I'm sure, but where do they get them? The bosses get them, like Bomber. I heard they get some from the big man. Same with the bullets. They say they're so powerful that they could only put five in a box, or they might explode or something. Anyhow, Scooge was all itching to use his big gun. I was putting a box of food in the car. Lady was a-screaming, and there was a really big bang. Them fancy guns is loud. The lady wasn't screaming no more. Right. Then why did you kill Tim Dexter, the man in the second house? Man, you keep saying that. I told you. I didn't kill nobody. I didn't fire a single shot the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in the second house. Yeah, I saw Scooge yelling at the old man. We found some food, but not much. The old dude wasn't telling Scooge where all the other food was hid. Old dude said he didn't have no hidden food. I saw the old man begging Scooge not to hurt him. But that only made Scooge mad. Trevor stopped and looked at the floor. Shot right in the head, he said softly. So you were in the room at the time, doing what? Scooge said to look through all the rooms and the closets for secret compartments or hidden doors, places they might hide the food. I was digging around in a closet. You and the other three didn't go into the third house? Why not? Scooge told us to load up the food that we got from the second house. Said he and the rest of them had taken the third house. That's when you homies started showing up and shooting. My brother Ty figured it was time we got out of there, so we split. I thought we was free and clear until I saw that truck across the road. I knew we was toast. Ty, Bondo, and Rampy, they all thought they could blast their way out. But I had this terrible feeling. I bent down and asked my grandma's Jesus to help me. Shooting started, car almost flips, glass flying. I got hit in the arm. I figured I was a dead man any second. But then the shooting stopped. I thought maybe grandma was right. You was all hollering at me to get out of the car, and you stopped that guy from blowing my head off. Martin was silent. How much of Trevor's story was fabricated innocence? Sure, a trained lawyer could tell, but Martin couldn't. All the eyewitnesses were dead. At the very least, it was obvious that Trevor couldn't have killed the Kendalls. When he and Charles got Trevor out of the Lancer, they took that little Keltac out of his waistband. It still had a full magazine. Maybe Trevor didn't shoot anyone. He was, nonetheless, an accessory to the first two murders and guilty of theft. 
Come on, man. You gotta help me. I know I ain't no angel, but I didn't kill those people. Martin stood up, took the stool and the lantern. He knocked on the chief's door. You do it, right, man? Trevor called out through the dark hallway. Right? It seems Martin has gotten himself drafted into some thorny town business as well, whether he likes it or not. Some of you who responded to my survey said you weren't comfortable donating via Buy Me a Coffee and suggested that I set up a Patreon page. So I did. You'll find it at patreon.com slash Mick underscore Roland. I'm trying to set up the patron perks to be the same as those of my Siege Club members on Buy Me a Coffee. Thanks for listening and supporting me.